Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 67, Act 1, Lynn's Aimer, The Power of Queer Joy, recorded May 10th, 2023. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives aloud are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry, powered by A Space Between. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for supporting this indie podcast. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our global community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and head over to teachingartistry.org to access episodes, guest bios, e-zines, merch, and more. Y'all, we are kicking off a new season, season seven. Let's go. We've got exciting guests and just deep, deep conversations. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good 2024, season seven. You know, I wanted to share that uh, January is a weird month for me, um, or this January has been a weird month for me. I'm, I'm, a lot is happening, but one of the greatest things that's happened this month is I went to go see a show at the New Victory called Grand Soft Day with my little theater buddy, um, who is the daughter of one of my very, very dear friends. And the show explores weather and nature. And um, first of all, I love this little, this little tot. I cannot, I cannot. Funny, warm, like sharp. But uh, last year, I was able to, to introduce her to the new victory in a, in a show when she was... I guess she's three and a half now. So she was just, just about three. And now, ooh, like it's so amazing to see the little ones develop in just a short amount of time, a couple months. But anyway, so she just loved how, um, she loved the show. She loved it, period. That's it. 
I loved <laughs> the fact that she uh, was having a good time in the lobby activities before and after the show. Um, I loved watching how her while the show was running and how engaged she was. Um, it was a 40 minute performance, which is perfect. There's um, not quite a narrative to this piece, more of a, a journey, I guess, potentially a visceral and emotional journey um, for the littlest audience members and the adults. And um, yeah, she was taking cues from the music and the lights and the foley and the set and narrating. You know, she was creating some narration um, that wasn't, you know, verbally stated by the performers. And I just, I mean, I can't. Um, and that's, that is the beauty, <clears throat> I think, of the work that we do. Well, I'm, you know, very connected to this one particular kid. Like, I just love that in the lobby, I, you know, we were drawing and I'm engaging with her on this, this drawing. <laughs> and then like five other kids were showing me their drawing. And I was like, oh, do I put out that vibe? I get it. Um, so, you know, I'm not a parent, but I, I, I'm an auntie and I work with a lot of kids. I've worked with thousands of them over the years. And, um, yeah, I, I think about parenting, you know, this, my job mainly focuses on students. So I don't go to a public show or a family show very often, but I went with a parent there are lots of other parents there and it's been making me think about parenting. Again, I am not, a, I am not specifically a parent. I do not have my own kids, but you know, like I say, it takes a village. So I'm aware of like what my responsibility is as a grown up in kids' lives of being a soft space, a place where we can explore together, experiment, etc., And thinking about our guests, for this month, the kind of conversation that we've had and, and their work. Um, some, some ideas came up. Oh, I'm thinking about my own, like, how I was parented. Um, I hear questions that are just like flowing through my brain. Like, what if parenting was, was really about process and not product? Hmm? What if parenting was about encouragement over optics, respect over expectations? Like what if parenting was about being open to the possibilities rather than setting a course for a kid and expecting them to follow that course? You know, something that they had no, no design or, you know, say in, right? What if instead they are... The kid is so centered that they are the architect of their world and the parent is like the engineer, right? Supporting, seeing that vision come to life. Um, I think a lot of parents do this. So, you know, there's that. I think some do it willingly. Others do it maybe not so willingly. Um, some may be doing it and not being thinking about it like that. Um, but that's how I am thinking about my role in supporting the other grownups who have had, who actually, you know, call themselves parents. Um, 
So let's get to it. Let's get to our guest. <laughs> uh, our guest is Linz Amer. And Linz is a performer and writer, educator, and activist who has a, a debut book that was released in 2023 called Rainbow Parenting, Your Guide to Raising Queer Kids and Their Allies. And this is a nonfiction book um, that you'll learn more about and about the process of the book itself um, from our guest. And overall, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this book um, as a strong tool for all grownups um, and kids and kids alike. Um, so most recently I interacted with Linz through uh, a podcast series that we, we, uh, we released last year featuring New York City Children's Theater. And Linz was a guest in one of the episodes that featured um, the gender affirming resources of which they were a collaborator. Um, so as I said, Linz is a multi-hyphenate artist, a native New Yorker, and just, again, an overall lovely human. In this episode, we learn about Linz's journey growing up, about some of the roles that they, they have right now, and how the arts impacted them um, and has been a source of healing their inner child through the work that they do as an artist and advocate. Here is episode 67. 67, y'all. This is season seven. Let's do this. Episode 67, act one, Linz Amer. The power of queer joy. Hello, Linz. Hiya. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right. End of the day, we're chilling. Just, you know, winding down. But lovely, glad to be here. Well, I'm I'm glad you're spending your your wine down with me. <laughs> uh, welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast celebrates artists, culture, and equity. And I'm excited to learn more about your journey in arts and advocacy. Um, so let's just start with a very simple, you know, how you doing? How your loved ones doing? What's going on? How am I doing? Um, so my book is coming out in about three weeks uh so I'm in I feel very much like eye of the storm right now like everything feels like calm but like maybe a little too calm <laughs> before like everything probably is going to explode my face in the next like four to six weeks so uh a lot of like excitement terrified anxious <laughs> <laughs> um, but also like just kind of sitting and waiting for time to continue moving forward, um, which is always the worst thing. So, but also trying to enjoy the free time that I have in this moment before my schedule blows up. Um, so yeah, that's how I'm feeling right now. My loved ones. Uh, well, also like, you know, everything in the world feeling like right now. <laughs> the WGA strike and uh so like I'm not really doing much in the TV film world right now which is like a part of my work and yeah loved ones are good though <laughs> the dogs are not happy about me being on a podcast right now but they can deal with it for an hour <laughs> tell us about the book that's gonna drop yeah, so my debut book, uh, Rainbow Parenting, Your Guide to Raising Queer Kids and Their Allies, comes out May 30th, 
2023 and uh it's pretty exciting it's it's a book for it's marketed as a parenting book but like really it's for anyone who works with and around children or like has children in their lives which I think is like a majority of people um and it's really about how to bring up young people in a queer and gender affirming way, especially, you know, since we all live in this heterocentric cisnormative world and we were all raised with those ideals, right? So the book really, it's like a bit of like a queer theory 101, super, super accessible, gives lots of practical guidance on how to introduce ideas ideas around gender and pronouns and sexuality and the LGBTs and consent and and all of these things in just like a really, really approachable way. Um, So yeah, that's the book (laughs) coming out May 30th, right before Pride. Amazing. Amazing. And is that your, is that going to be your spiel on your, on your book tour? Yeah. So I'm doing a big old book tour um, all throughout June this year. So I'm seven cities I'm going across the country I'm doing family and like kids performances but I'm also doing like book events at um a lot of like queer owned indie booksellers bookstores um I've done a lot of traveling and I've done like performances in lots of different places but I've never done like such a concentrated tour like this um So I'm really excited I'm working with like a lot of different places and partnerships um a some of them like you know in the bay area i'm just going around with this like queer owned mobile bookstore and whatever events they have going on i'm doing a couple of libraries a couple of children's museums so i think it's going to be fun i'm really really excited to connect um with people across the country who are excited about bringing their kids to like pride shows for families i think it'll be a really fun time Uh, a little scary maybe just in the current political climate but exciting yeah yeah i did that did cross my mind so we can talk about that a little bit if you like so so um this is you said this is your debut Mm -hmm. book wow and um can you tell us um what what is your sort of role within this field. I heard performer, obviously now author, you can add. What else? I do a lot of things. Um, I'm just, you know, one of those multi-hyphenate creative humans. Yes, we here at Teaching Artistry really like to embrace all all the artist identities. So please share. I'm a writer. Um, book for sure is part of that. I also have written plays. I've written episodes of preschool television. Um, I've written songs. Um, So writer in that capacity. I'm also a performer. Um, I am kind of like speaker. Um, I I kind of push those two things together. I do a lot of children's performances and family performances. I also speak and give keynotes in public speaking. I have like a viral TED talk that I gave in 2019. So writer and performer are big parts of what I do. Um, 
and I think are kind of like the, the, those are like the two solid things. Um, I would also call myself an entrepreneur, um, <laughs> maybe, uh, a, a little hesitantly. Um, that's the part of just like running your own business and like being a creative person that, uh, they don't teach you about <laughs> in, uh, creative arts programs. Um, so that's been certainly a learning curve on that end of things. Um, and then, I guess I'm an activist. Uh, also, something I feel like I kind of stumbled into in as well as like calling myself like an educator of sorts. Um, those are kind of like two, I think, parts of the hyphenates <laughs> that I've sort of stumbled into as someone who went from kind of like children's storytelling and, and, and theater and being a performer and a creator and developer of, of new works and have kind of come into like, what's my artistic practice? That's been the entrepreneurial side. And then the like activism and education really came from Queer Kid Stuff, which is the web series that I started in 2016. And just kind of like the format of that show has elements of education. It's kind of like a queer Mr. Rogers for preschool sort of thing. Um, and so I had to bring in kind of like an educational side of it. And then the activism of it is that it's like a queer web series for kids. And uh, a lot of people don't like that. <laughs> so the so the activist side of it has had to kind of evolve and grow in the same way as the educator side of it. Um, I think those are all of my hyphens. Oh, I'm also a musician. Um, I've kind of been uh, in and around music my entire life, primarily as a singer, but I also play the ukulele. I did poke around on your web series to see what what's it all about, and it seems really great. We could go off into many different branches, but I want to start from the beginning, <laughs> if we may. So where where did you grow up with all these different hyphens? Like where did all the, the where were the beginnings of these? hyphens so I grew up in New York City I grew up downtown in Manhattan um I yeah born and bred New Yorker <laughs> um went to I went to Friends the Quaker High School on 416th Street um for I think that the performer side of what I do is like the very first thing I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I had dehydrated ice cream for the first time and was like, no, absolutely not. No. I will not be eating this. Thank no, you. You're right. No, <laughs> Tang, even Tang. I was like, no, exactly. It was gross. Um, so I was like, I, I cannot eat this kind of ice cream for my, in, in my day-to-day -day life, in my career, I guess I'm not going to be an astronaut. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a famous actor and fell in love with like Broadway and musical theater as a kid. I mean, I grew up in New York city and my parents would like take me to a musical on my birthday every year when I was a kid. And I just like loved it would just like belt musical theater in my bedroom to everybody in my family's chagrin. And, uh, I started taking like voice lessons when I was in middle school and, you know, was a theater kid, did all the high school plays and musicals and all that stuff. Um, and that was in acting classes and things like that when I was a teenager and always just like really loved that. And um, my mom has her MFA in acting and is a early childhood music teacher. 
Um, so that and my parents, they're since very divorced, but um, they actually like met at like a choir, I think. <laughs> so um, yeah, the performer was always kind of like the first thing for me that's really led into everything. And then writing, I think, kind of came in high school for me. Um, I was really confused and sad as a teenager, just like didn't know who I was and was very confused about sexuality and like unbeknownst to me, my gender and uh, writing, especially kind of like junior, senior year of high school was really an important outlet for me. Um, learning how to read properly, how to, uh, you know, constructive uh, constructive criticism and analysis of literature and um, learning that I had a writing voice. Um, so really starting to experiment that with that. And um, I found that I was good at it and I liked it. Um, I think I've had to like kind of come back to writing. Um, I think college really kind of like demoralized with me with that. Um, but uh, after that, I think I've kind of come back around to it and now it's a significant part of my career so something i connect with is that uh while my parents are, are now my ancestors um they also met singing um at like a country not a country a church type jamboree um and then they were both like singers in our church and that kind of thing so i think music does bring people together my stepdad's also a, like, he's not a singer, but he's a jazz musician. So music is like very in my family. I think music is a really strong entry point for most people because it's playing often around us and, you know, in cars or on the radio or, you know, now, but just growing up, like it just was a thing. Like you just, it was, it was a given <laughs> as opposed to sometimes something that you'd have to go to because it was accessible in the house in the home and and around um but yeah so that's something and then uh, you know writing i think is as um you mentioned uh something else i connected with meaning is uh as a teenager just trying to to figure out who I everybody's trying to figure out who they are right and then if there's more um there are more layers to it and not enough uh words <laughs> or you know folks around you to try and support you know I, I can see art being a really great vehicle to try and and work through some of those things how do you connect the younger you to who you are now and how you're able to express yourself now I think that's something that I've had to work on a lot especially over the last few years is like healing my inner child um and I think a lot of my work has used kind of like that inner child work and like you know the the entity that I've had to like come up with in my brain of like okay who was that kid um as like kind of like a muse figure for a lot of what I've done I think in particular queer kid stuff um the the web series and I think I think there's a lot of my work that I make because I wish I had it when I was a kid and um that's a, it's been a really powerful muse for me. I think that I'm, you know, be, I've become a lot more connected to my childhood and like my inner child over the last couple of years, especially, you know, since the pandemic and lockdown and like really having to like grapple with myself and like my identity in ways that I 
didn't necessarily have to before I could have kind of like shut it out and like not listen to it. But like, um, there are parts of my identity that I hadn't wanted to grapple with when, and I like look at childhood photos of myself and everything becomes so much more clear, right? Of like now that I, f I feel like it's been full circle, like I've come back to the like most authentic version of myself that I was when I was a kid before society like got to me, right? And I think that's been a really important like healing journey for me over the last couple of years in particular. And uh, it wasn't easy, <laughs> but I think it's been really fruitful. How I met you was through the New York City Children's Theater partnership that we have. We interviewed Caitlin um, as part of that partnership. And one of the, uh, towards the end, she asks me, you know, why, you know, what would you do for little Courtney? And I, I was like, oh. And so since that, since that conversation, I, um, and, and now, right, this very moment, I'm reminded of transitioning from out of college into my, you know, my young adult years, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in, in my, in, in, to make a career and feeling a tussle between feeling or honoring my creative spirit that I had as a kid and what sort of put me into being a theater major and, you know, all those things in college to, to, you know, needing to become an adult and an adult somehow felt like you can't have fun the way you did. And I found Sark. Do you know Sark? It's an entity that is, has books, works, workbooks, um, inspirational quotes that are really about serving and feeding your creative self, but from, it feels very kid-like. I remember buying, I remember going to the bookstore. I went to bookstores a lot. I found Sark and I just, it, you know, I was really drawn to the, the font, which felt like a kid's crayon. It was like a crayon. And it, there was lots of like doodles and drawings. And then it would be like little tasks that you would do for yourself, like build a fort, <laughs> build a blanket fort. And I remember very distinctly at like 23 being in my friend's house, <laughs> not my house, but my friend's house and being like, let's build a fort. And they were like, what? And I just made a fort and they thought I was bonkers. But at the same time, I was like, ah, I like connecting with like, I remember making forts when I was a kid. And if I could keep that alive then that's going to that's going to serve me in some sort of way and then I, I think I forgot it at one point and I just feel like the work that I get to do now gives me a chance to to be both professional and kid-like yeah I think I feel that a lot well one in the performances that I do certainly but I also teach early childhood music as kind of like a part-time pay the bills sort of thing. And like, on a, I mean, that means that I'm in preschool classes like twice a week and it's just, I just get to be silly and like get to just like have fun and like play my little ukulele and like the kids sing along with me. And like, we do a little like fun, like keep the rhythm, like movements and stuff. And it's just like, it just feels really good. It just feels really good to like be 
around kids who are like there with you present like there to just like be silly and like yes they're learning and it's like music development theory and like all this yada yada stuff but like it's just fun and I I really hope I don't ever have to give up those music classes if my schedule gets too busy because it's just like it's so grounding and it's just like it's just like such a good time to like be around young people who are just like you know worried about the present moment and like that's where they are right and like my job is to just like help them have fun and like learn to express themselves through this artistic medium that I love and has been with me my whole life and has been some like I feel like music is one of those things where it's like you know telling the fish that they are you know where's the water <laughs> um I think that that's been like a big thing with music for me is because like I've just kind of like discovered like oh right I have this skill set that like not everybody has like this is something I can give to the world and like that also like lifts me up and makes me feel good I just love kids. I, you know, like even, even strange kids, like strangers, I, I'm, I'm not a creepster, but there are moments where like I happen to be in space with kids and to watch the way that the energy that emanates from a kid versus an adult in the same space, I'm much more drawn to like, these kids are present. They're just focused on whatever's happening right now. They don't have as much stress or if they do, it, it just manifests differently. Right. Um, and so I'm just really the other yesterday or the other day I was walking to the subway and I was, I was doing, giving a voice memo, like I was, you know, walking and texting and, and doing a voice memo and these kids, and these kids were across the street. It was after school and they they had that after school energy, you know, it, it, it might've even been after, after school, uh, cause it was like five. And, um, and I, I said in the memo, I was like, oh, you know, it's loud because there are kids like chatting. And I just look great at it. Like, I was like, ah, how wonderful. And then like, they happened to walk up the next block with with me, but they were still across the street. And then something happened, something changed <laughs> where like now they were cursing at, like one kid was cursing at another kid. They were like teens, like teens, teens. And I was like, oh, well, there you go. But yet it's still, somehow it's still endearing to me. <laughs> like, like I could see another adult being like, what are you doing? And they, because they were, there were, you know, bad words that were coming out of this kid's mouth, but it was like, but that's normal. I think that's pretty normal. <laughs> no, it totally is. I mean, I think it's important for like, you know, I, I mean, this is something that I like talk about with like gender a lot, but like, because I don't know, that's my specialty, I guess. Um, But I think you know, the importance of just like letting kids experience and experiment with like everything <laughs> and like that being like a way that young people can like learn about themselves and learn how they fit into the world. Right. Because like, I mean, take for example, like, um, 
playing with like swords and like weapons like this is uh i mean i think that that's you know tough for a lot of grown-ups but like it actually can be an important part of like a child developing a sense of like their own strength first of all and and like also and like body awareness and like there are just like a lot of developmental things that are really important in something as small as like getting a foam sword for your kids so they can like hit the wall with it when they're angry and like understanding that like it's okay for young people to have the full spectrum of human emotions and the full spectrum of like human experience because I think that something that um, I've had a hard time with in kind of like understanding how I was parented and like you know the whole like you know reparenting myself a little bit through in my adulthood is like my parents were very worried about me making mistakes and having to I think undo that a little bit for myself because mistakes aren't necessarily failures right mistakes can be learning opportunities failures can be learning opportunities like just today like we were running a kickstarter campaign for a project we wanted to make happen and we didn't hit our funding goal and we're not going to get the money and then we're not going to be able to do the project and Womp womp. That sucks. I'm not like happy about that. But like, you know, it happened. It didn't work. People, <laughs> it didn't, you know, catch the right people. The timing was maybe off. There were, but there were things that I could have learned that I learned from it, right? Like, I'd never run a Kickstarter campaign for a product before. Like, that was a new thing for me that I needed to learn about. And now I'm going into it like, you know, okay, that didn't work. What can I learn from that to, you know, use next time? What information have I gotten from that? And I think it, I mean, just kind of going back to the kids and experimenting and like, especially with gender stuff, like if a kid wants you to call them a different name for a week, like what harm is that going to do? Like what could they be learning from that? Like they could be learning whether a different name feels good to them, but they also could be learning that like, oh, my like parents and the grownups in my life value and respect me when I ask them to help me with something. And I think that that is a far more important lesson for every child to understand, regardless of whether they're going to be cis or trans or non-binary or et cetera, et cetera, right? They'll be okay. I, 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 I really appreciate the point that you're making around what if, you know, we, we just give that room and that the young people will feel supported. <laughs> They'll actually feel supported. Like the, the, there's a potentially like a misnomer from a parental perspective of if I, if I, if they make mistakes, then they, they won't, they won't be able to excel as opposed to, if I, they know I'm here as they're, you know, like just like a toddler is learning to walk. Like if they know that I'm here, but that they can make mistakes, that actually could be even more, uh, creating more pathways for resilience, right. Um, or ways to connect or things to, to think about like, and, uh, be critical around like, Oh, well, if I did this, and that happened, you know, maybe I won't do that again, or I'll do that differently. I mean, my dad 
was like a fancy lawyer at a fancy law firm for a long time. And I think like a lot of it was like he wanted to be able to brag to his colleagues about his kids and uh, wanted to like, you know, get us into the best schools. Like, I don't know, quote unquote best. And like, what is the perception of what best means within our current societal structure? And like, you know, usually that means like private Ivy League school. You were born and raised in New York, but you don't have a New York accent. No, my dad is from Long Island, and he really made sure that my sister and I did not have Long Island accents. But uh, you would you would not say that if you went to an extended family barbecue <laughs> or bat mitzvah. <laughs> I mean, I, I same. I grew up on Long Island, and I I don't think people think I sound like I'm from Long Island. And um, my well, my parents weren't from New York, so I think that was part of it. Yeah, my dad was born in Queens, grew up in Long Island, um, and my mom's from California. She's from Bay Area, Santa Cruz, so uh, I don't know. Maybe the accents cancel each other out or something. <laughs> Earlier when you said, you know, I, a lot of the work that I feel like I'm doing now or you're doing now is part of a healing process, um, healing the kid, the inner child in you, and I'm just curious, like, how what, what what were you like as a kid? Like you are such a strong advocate for yourself and others now. What were you like? Yeah, I really haven't thought about it in a long time. Cause it cause it's interesting, especially with like um with trans folks um and like especially trans masculine folks, um there is at least for me a point where I think I faded into the background. Um, because I was never perceived in the way that I want to be, wanted to be perceived as a, as a child. Um, I was misgendered constantly. Nobody really knew what bathroom I should be in with which parent. And there was, uh, and that got to me at a certain point. So I think it's part of me looking back on my childhood is a little bit of like untangling of like, okay. Who was I as a person before all of that stuff and like outside of all of that stuff? Because, I mean, we were before we hopped on, we were talking about like trauma and trauma informed stuff. And like that certainly was a traumatic point in my life around kind of like my perception of my gender as I, you know, just walked around as a child who didn't have any kind of understanding of language or gender roles things like that and um I mean I think I was a bit I was a shy kid I'm still I'm still kind of shy despite you know being a person who is a performer and uh you know in interviews large personality um but I I am a little bit of a I'm very much an introvert um when I'm you know not (laughs) the center of attention and uh so I think that that certainly was part of it um, and who I was as a kid, but I also just like, think I've always kind of been silly, (laughs) um, and like goofy and like kind of weird. And, um, that's just kind of always been who I am and my personality and like very, I'm generally a pretty like go with the flow kind of person. I, um, certainly have anxiety, but, uh, I think, Yeah, I think in, like, reflecting on my childhood and what I was like, 
it's a lot of like understanding like okay what do I understand about myself now and like how I am and like what makes me feel good and like that feels connected to how I was as a kid even if I don't have like distinctive memories especially because a lot of my childhood is like was pretty traumatic and like the gender stuff um so like memory can be a little fuzzy around that um but yeah I think I was I loved soccer um I well yeah wanted to be an astronaut I was always like tomboyish and like pretty like rough and tumble if it came to it. And yeah, I think I just like had a lot of fun. For elementary school, I went on the Upper East Side. And then for a bit of middle school and then all of high school, I was at Friends. Yeah. And what did you do post high school? I did the theater program at Northwestern. I went in wanting to perform. Um, wasn't really getting cast in anything. Um, wasn't like a student theater hotshot. <laughs> um, kind of ended up, um, working with the children's theater board, um, the student theater board, um, there, Purple Crayon Players, lovely. Um, worked with them a lot. Was, that was kind of like my, the beginnings of me doing kind of like theater for kids and storytelling for kids. Um, ended up doing like a lot of, um, stage managing and some producing more like I did stage management because I wanted to be in rehearsal rooms. Um, I want because I was like, OK, I'm not getting cast right now. I want to still be learning and I want to still be in these rooms and in these spaces. So I started doing the stage management. Wasn't very good at it. <laughs> um, it's uh, certainly not uh, a role that I uh was very good at but like at least I was in the rooms that I wanted to be in and I think that was the point of it for me um and did a little bit of producing also was like pretty mediocre at that I've since gotten better at producing but also know how to hire people who know how to do it better than me and uh then and I ended up doing a lot of like new work development. Um, so there's a lot of that at Northwestern. There's like a pretty robust playwriting program. I did some of those classes. I I had trouble with playwriting, I have to say. Um, it might have been the program itself, but I also found that like I loved writing and I wanted to figure out and I, and I wanted to, like, write scripts and dialogue and all of that. And I had written a play um, in high school. Um, but I think I just, like, didn't know enough about myself. Because, like, I, I knew that I wanted to write. And I knew I had something to say. But I I couldn't figure out how to put myself into it. And I think a lot of that had to do with, like, me needing to figure more of my stuff out or like be more open to allowing the writing to help me work stuff out and I think I just like wasn't ready for it at the time and like the stuff that I wrote just like wasn't good <laughs> um which is fine because I think that when you're learning I don't think it has to be good um but it took me a while to figure out like the kinds of stories I wanted to tell um and so I think in my kind of like 
mid to late 20s that's kind of what I started figuring out of like oh okay I have like something I want to say like these are a couple of ideas I think I know how to put myself into it and then I could work my work through things um, on the page as I was doing that um so yeah so I new works development I did a little bit of directing kind of like later um because uh you just kind of have to be like more senior uh, in that program to like start kind of getting the directing stuff um, or at least that was my experience um, and I really loved that um, and yeah not as much performing at school um, outside of my like acting classes um, but I think that that's just kind of you know theater programs that you know the pretty white girl ingenue and the one straight masculine man and they all get all the parts. Um, uh, this is certainly something that I've commiserated over with, with like all of the like trans and non-binary people who've since come out <laughs> after graduating and like the folks of color who were in the program who I feel like we all had similar experiences where we weren't like the ones who were sought after and yet we have careers now and I think that's kind of cool. I came out as non-binary when I was uh, I think 25 or 26 so post-college um, and then have kind of since come out as trans in the last like couple of years. So now I identify as um, trans non-binary, trans masculine depending on the day. For me, the performance and like the identity piece have been an evolution. Um, I really came kind of like, I didn't do a lot of performing in college um, outside of my like acting class, um, which was a great, wonderful, like educational experience um, of performance. Um, but when I started performing kind of like in my, as you know, a person in the world, you know, figuring out my artistic career, I was doing characters that are versions of myself so queer kid stuff it's this kind of like mr rogersy like friendly neighbor kind of thing which is just like a heightened version of myself right so like i never had in that way i haven't had to put myself into the box of like a preconceived character in kind of like these early years of what I've been doing and turning into a career right because like I was just just being myself and like me I was evolving and my performance was just naturally and organically evolving along with that and that was more about uh, my expression and like how people perceive me than it was about like how I was performing myself because like I just do <laughs> um, there isn't like a lot of thought outside of like this is this version of me right um, and so I mean I've brought that into my live performances as well it's the same character so I really only like in the last like year or two I've really started going back into performing as like okay like actor again what is that like because it's different than like performing as self and I've really only felt comfortable starting to do that since I've gotten top surgery honestly which was January 2020 Ooh. It was a year ago from this past January, so 2022, January 2022, um, math time, Oof. Um, and 
I think the, a couple of the things that I started doing were like going back over my music repertoire. Um, and like, you know, I, I'm not on T. I, my voice hasn't like dropped or anything, but I've always had a wide range and music teachers and voice teachers always gave me these like really high soprano parts that like always just like felt really uncomfortable in my throat. And I think that I was experiencing some sort of vocal dysphoria. And so now I've put like corner of the sky from Pippin in my book because I can wail on that song. All I have to do is like turn, like push it down a couple of keys or up. I don't really know. Um, I just play it in a key that makes sense for my voice and like, like giants in the sky and like these tenor parts that like these songs that I really connect to. And it's, and it's so interesting because I think like as a young person, I was singing these like, you know, uh ingenue songs and like i remember like one of these songs was like um it's uh, i don't even remember what show it's from it's called mira i came from the town of mira and it's like it's one of these like you know girl from a small town comes to a big city and is like nobody knows my name here and i'm like why did someone give me that song like what how first of all like as like a born and bred new yorker like first of all like how was i gonna relate to that like even, like as a teenager and like understand that experience but also i'm just like looking back and i'm like oh like i'm not like a little girl like coming into this like big big bright world where nobody knows who i am i'm like there's just nothing about that story that i can connect to no wonder like it just felt like singing and I didn't know how to like perform at the time. And so now I'm understanding like, okay, like let me look at material and story first and see how I can connect to that and like that character. And that is more important than like the gender of whatever character I'm looking at because like, is Pippin technically a male character? Yes. Do I identify as a man? No, but like, I don't, care if I can still connect the material right and so like something I'm trying to figure out so I signed with a talent agent oh my god my dogs are really going for it um, <laughs> um I signed with a talent agent I think two years ago and it's been really interesting kind of like figuring out how to work with them because they put me up for a lot of like non-binary parts but like there aren't a lot of non-binary parts out there in the world um so like I I'm trying to like have this conversation with them around like, okay, like I'm actually comfortable going in for male roles. I'm not as comfortable going in for female roles, but like we can talk about it because, you know, I'm watching the show Yellow Jackets and one of the young people um, kind of like in like the teenage parts of the show um one of them is this like lesbian character who's played by a non-binary actor and like that like kind of like butch like vibe from that from that character like that's something I feel like I could probably play and it's the same with um uh, I was just talking about the last of us with someone the other, um today um Bella Ramsey identifies as gender fluid and like that character is female but like but like Bella also wore a binder while they were filming. And so like there are ways that I can bring myself to these kind of like gendered casting. And I do actually think it's a little bit like looking at 
a character without thinking about the race that the character was necessarily intended as because like I'm going to bring myself to this part and like I have like I can tap into my masculinity and my femininity and connect to the story of that character and that's I think what matters unless like your story is about the cisgender male experience and I'm like no I can't relate to that but like that's not going to be a character that I'm going to perform anyways because I can't relate to that character right so I think it I do think we have to get a little bit um, creative sometimes about casting and I don't know if that is there in the industry right now and I think the onus is really put on the actors to like see ourselves like in roles that aren't necessarily like made to adapt to us because I'm just like wouldn't it be cool for people to just like see this character that they've written and then watch my audition and say you know what we thought that this was a male character like but like actually you would be really cool in this. And like, this could be a really cool non-binary character because what's interesting is that I find, cause I've, I consult a little bit on shows. And so I read scripts and I read kind of like for non-binary and trans characters sometimes and give notes. And sometimes I'll like read a non-binary character and I'm like, you are going into writing this character and like the idea of this character with an idea in mind for the kind of trans and kind of non-binary person this is without kind of like leaving your mind open to the potentiality of like what it, what that person could be and what that person's experience could be. So yeah, I think I get a little frustrated with that sometimes because I'm like, oh, but you're like missing out on like how how like beautiful and expansive like the queer and trans like performance can be. And like if you're pigeonholing in yourself into like a non-binary person that's only ever played by like someone who's assigned male at birth, then like you're missing out on like a whole width and breadth of like some like incredible performers and I think that like it just like I get sad when people write characters that are just like too specific you know what I mean and like as a writer too I'm like I get that I get like I have an image in my head but like I get so excited when a person can embody that character and bring them beyond so anything that I could have even imagined and I wish people more were a little bit more open to that part of the creative process. You're reminding me of make you talked about making new work and and you're reminding me of when I perform right now I'm in a in a more improv kind of lane um which I which I'm which uh, works really well for the schema of my life uh, <laughs> but when I when I'm performing or in the past when I've like developed new work um, often it's physical, physical based, physical theater based and vignette is where sort of where I go. And, um, we had done a show where we had several vignettes. So there were play, like uh, most of the characters were players except for the main character, which was a main character. And, um, in this case it was a cisgender girl who's like trying to figure out, uh, love and all. And so, uh, you know, I was one of the players who would play multiple characters, including in the second production or the second um, run of this, I was the mom. <clears throat> um, but there was a character that I would, there were several characters that I would play, but one of them was, I very specifically imbued it with 
what was in my head. I, mean, I have no idea what the audience saw, but in my head, I was an old Jewish man, <laughs> like a grandpa. I mean, but that, you know, like I didn't say that out loud, but that's what I sort of built in my head. And I was grandpa. I was like, you know, the char- the other character that I was talking to was say grandpa, right? But I, you know, I had this whole thing, you know, and, and, and I, so I appreciate what you're saying in terms of like, you know, what, what's on the page is meant to be brought to life by an actor, um, you know, somebody who understands that craft and what they can bring to it will be, could be more. And if it's so specific in terms of the writing, you know, there's, there's, I, in our, in our particular society, we, I think, I think (laughs) we recognize that there's so much nuance to so many aspects of our lives, but we can't seem to handle it in media. (laughs) And that starts to filter back down into real life. And then if, and then it goes the other way around where it's like, could you, no, no, real life is saying, no, no, more nuance, but the media hasn't quite gotten there yet. And um, anyway, so I just think the idea of being able to be uh, able to make work and I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, the fact that right now we're in a writer's strike. Hollywood is like a weird place with lots of like very particular internal politics. It's one of the it's it's a you know, I, I've got my toes in a couple of different kind of like media industries and each one is just as weird as the next one and like with its own silly quirks and strange curiosities and uh it's you know the creative industry is a weird and wild place and it's uh i wouldn't say that like that's necessarily like the fun part of what i do but it is definitely like the chess game of what I do. And like, I think that, I think that the thing that stands out to me about like the differences in creative industries in particular is like the pace. Like each one of them feels like it has a very different pace to it. Like publishing is slow, so slow, like just absolutely glacial has been my experience um hollywood is a lot of like hurry up and wait hurry up and wait (laughs) like that's very much the face of it and then um i mean theater i don't know do you have uh thoughts on the pace of theater (laughs) the part of theater that i'm in is is theater for young audiences which is uh, growing, but it, it's, it's, mo- it's basically modeled off of nonprofit or regional theater. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's a lot of like, make, make, like, go, 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 go. Wait, don't do it that way. <laughs> go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like cycling back in theater. I think the commercial theater world. I don't. I don't have as. I don't touch that specifically. I know of it and I know people in it, but it feels. It feels very. Um, you know, I know. I know it more from the actor's perspective than the producer perspective, um, which that feels like there is. There is definitely a. a 
a balance and power or imbalance and power between the performers and the producers which is problematic we have a lot of very weird indus- mainstream industries that have commodified creativity and uh they all have their setbacks certainly <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 67, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Lynn's Amer, The Power of Queer Joy. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Find us on Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.